Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'll be speaking today with Brendan Ballou, a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. We're going to talk about his first book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. And you can learn more at plunderthebook.com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T E W R. E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. I usually account for the failure of the United States to do what's needed to confront the crises we face, crises that I believe have either grown out of the distortion of our economy and our politics are, or are unsolvable because of them. And the list I usually choose is inequality, climate change, an unhealthy relationship with the rest of nature, pandemics and public health, social and racial division and tribalism, crippled government, and endangered democracy. Those are what I, huge crises that we are not dealing with adequately and may not even with our current system of politics and uh, economics um, be equipped to do so. And I usually point towards a combination of greed and minority rule. Now, I looked into private equity eager to learn whether it actually even relies on minority rule or whether in this case, since both parties seem to enable it equally, for the most part, greed alone is sufficient. As I launch into this conversation, I can't help feeling reminded of 2006 when I did my first show on the subprime crisis and its dangerous financial tools, credit default swaps, securitization, etc., I'm likewise reminded of a remark attributed to former Fed Chair Paul Volcker that the last useful or beneficial financial innovation was the ATM. I've been vaguely aware of private equity for years, certainly of the leading companies, Blackstone, Carlyle, KKR, etc. I knew it had something to do with Sam Zell's purchase and destruction of the Tribune Company in the LA Times and of the slow rot of nursing homes, which became deadly during the pandemic. But I guess I assume this was just the latest vehicle for community and company and society destroying greed. And I hadn't been curious to look under the hood. Today's guest confesses that he also didn't understand private equity until he started the research that led to this book, Plunder. What is private equity? Well, here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you a few of the main points Brend Malou makes in defining private equity by its method of purchasing companies and then three characteristics or flaws of how it operates in the larger system. Private equity investors take a little of their own money, some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money, and they buy up companies. Then they try to make changes and sell them at a profit in a short time, a few years. Private equity wants to sell quickly, so the need to make money quickly drives decision-making. Private equity loads the companies they purchase with debt and extract a lot of fees and private equity are legally, this is the big one, are legally shielded from liability for the consequences of their actions. Think about that last one. The way I saw it is corporations shield individuals 
Well, private equity shields corporations. We've had short-term and small-picture thinking. By that, I mean everyone knows what short-term means. But what I mean by small picture is focusing primarily on shareholder return over other stakeholders, from employees to communities to the national and global consequences of actions. We've had that for years. Same with too much debt. Also with, you know, various shenanigans to avoid liability. These have long been three of the greatest contributors to an economy and a financial and resource allocation system that is failing failing to serve the greater good and the future. What jumps out to me about private equity is that it's designed to embody those three flaws. They are features, not bugs. Economist Branko Milanovic and Harvard Business School professor and author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, Rebecca Henderson, both in conversations with me separately declared that where capitalism, which they both are okay with, where it goes wrong, where it fails as a system is when business writes its own rules. And Ballou makes clear that that is the other piece of this phenomenon, huge lobbying and hiring of big and small players in government through a revolving door kind of setup to create, preserve, and expand the advantages of private equity in the marketplace. Blue also believes private equity can be stopped from wreaking further havoc, but we need the knowledge and the will to act. Brendan Blue is a federal prosecutor and served, as I said, as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's antitrust division. Previously, he worked in private practice and before that in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. He graduated from Columbia University and Stanford Law School. And as I said, Plunder is his first book. Welcome, Brendan Ballou, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thank you so much for having me. Let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Monday, June 12th. Now, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So can you tell us a bit about your path, how you got to the work you're doing today? And it would be tempting to start when you sort of went, what's going on here about private equity? But I'd prefer that you take it a little further back, how you, you know, may have chose your career. And, and, and you can go back to childhood uh, inspirations, turning points, mentors, that sort of thing, and then take us up to what led maybe the inciting incident that led to the book. Of course. And while it probably isn't terribly relevant for talking about my childhood, I should say that just across the board, I'm, of course, speaking in my personal capacity and not necessarily um, on behalf of the Justice Department. Very good. So, uh, you know, I can talk about what drew me to private equity, but to answer your deeper question, um, I think I was drawn to the work of economic justice and trying to build a fairer, um, better economy, really through my my parents and my mother, who was a community organizer in the Midwest um, mm. before I was born. She um, was one of the people that helped work to make sure that um, uh, uh, utility companies couldn't so easily shut off power for um, for residents who couldn't afford to pay their bill in the winter. And so I think her work and her life was... Um, really an inspiration for me about how to spend your time and what to try to work on. So I think that's what drew me to this work. In terms of what drew me specifically to private equity, you know, as you as you mentioned in your introduction, I served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department before I had that specific role. 
um, I was literally just going through the papers that companies file with DOJ and the FTC when they want to uh, buy one another or merge um, what are called HSR filings. And these companies that were getting bought were all getting bought by entities that I had never heard of. You know, as you mentioned, Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, and so forth. Um, it seemed like basically everything was getting bought up by these firms that I had no familiarity with. So I started researching them and learning more about private equity, what it is, you know, the effects that it has. And that's what ultimately drew me to this book project. Were you surprised that no one had done this before? Well, as much as I'd like to claim that I'm uh, that no one had done this before, I, you know, there are a lot of people that have been looking at these issues, and I want to give them um, the enormous credit that they're due. Eileen Applebaum and Rosemary Bad have written a really wonderful book back in 2012, I believe, wow. um, called um, "Private Equity at Work: When Wall Street Manages Main Street." Um, it was written for an academic audience, so there really had not been much written for sort of a popular audience um, on private equity, and that's what the, the niche that I was trying to fill. Okay, that, that makes sense. Um, and that is often what happens, and, and we all know about the, uh, the valley of death. Usually it's attributed to like a research discovery in science that never makes it into the real world. But the same thing can happen with a discovery in terms of what's going on in the world that may never make it to the wider world. Mm. Um, let me ask if you had any response to my introduction in, in terms of, you know, how this hits someone like myself or how, you know, how this whole area seems to, uh, you know, as, as I, I think what I sort of said there is like we hear it, but we don't know it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of summarizing the the basic institutional flaws that change private equity firms' incentives to you know that lead to lots of bad results. I think to your point, what a lot of people don't realize is just how much private equity surrounds them and directs their lives. Um, private equity firms spent over a trillion dollars buying companies last year, and you know, for comparison or a sense of scale, the entire U.S. GDP was twenty-five trillion dollars last year. Um, so when you look at just how you're living your life, you interact with private equity almost daily. When you go to a veterinary clinic or the OBGYN, when you go to the emergency room, buy a pair of shoes or a pair of slacks, you know, buy contacts, or you know, in some cities, just get a glass of water from your tap, you are directly or indirectly supporting a private equity firm. You know, the interesting thing about it is, despite the fact that these businesses are enormous. Carlisle, KKR, and Blackstone in different orders, um, if they were considered with their portfolio companies, would be the third, fourth, and fifth largest employers in America after Walmart and Amazon. Um, despite the enormous scale of these companies, because they don't really brand themselves, mm -hmm. you rarely hear about a um, you know, a Mars-owned veterinary clinic or a Blackstone-owned hospital or, you know, um, it really isn't sort of permeating public consciousness the way that it might normally. Mm -hmm. I think that's real. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, that is one of the crucial things and what makes this sort of moment, uh, as you and I said off air, Gretchen Morgenstern has a book on the same subject with a similar title. Um, it seems to me, like as I recall, back in 2006, 2007, there's a dawning. Um, in your own uh, case, you sort of said it was reading um, the submissions by companies uh, that wanted to 
to merge or purchase that that you had to overlook uh, that led to your curiosity. But was there a specific moment, a thing when you said, God, I've got to write about this? You know, it was really reporting that Peter Wariski in the Washington Post was doing on private equity across industries. And I think the story that just grabbed me was the one that we ultimately began the book with, which mm -hmm. was about Carlisle buying up the nursing home HCR Manor Care. And if you'll permit me, I can kind of briefly yes, describe it. Yes, that. I think that fleshing that out will help listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Carlisle, is, as we mentioned, is one of the largest private equity firms in America. And, and around 2007, it bought um, HCR Manor Care, which at the time was the second largest nursing home chain in the country. And once it was bought, uh, Carlisle executed a lot of tactics that are familiar for people that watch private equity. They required Manor Care to sell all of their real estate and then lease it back, which you know gives them a quick hit of cash, but now requires them to sort of pay rent on things that they used to own. They um, extracted money through transaction fees and management fees, so fees that are um, that the nursing home chain paid essentially for the privilege of being owned by a private equity firm. Um, they cut staffing, and as a result, um, you know, nursing home complaints ran, uh, rose, uh, complaints about um, health code violations, about roaches and pests in these nursing homes all went up. Um, and at least one resident died. Um, she, uh, as alleged in her complaint, her family's complaint, um, hit her head on a bathroom fixture after she had to go to the bathroom by herself because there was nobody there to help her. And this was the part that really grabbed me was when the family of that woman sued Carlisle, Carlisle was able to get the case dismissed by saying, we are not technically the owners of this nursing home chain. Rather, we merely advise a series of funds whose limited partners through several shell companies ultimately own the chain. And that was enough to get the case against Carlisle dismissed. And Carlisle ultimately was not held responsible financially for that woman's death. And that was the story that galvanized me because it showed that private equity firms, despite being able to control, you know, hundreds, thousands of companies, aren't necessarily gonna be held responsible legally for the consequences of their actions. Um, you, by the way, I've seen you in, in other interviews point out that you are a lawyer, not an economist. And so it, it makes sense that that's the thread that sort of snagged for you, you know. <laughs> um, but this decision that that court made, that, that they were not responsible, is that, um, it, should that have been expected? Or is that a surprise? And is that um, pretty consistent that uh, as one of their, um, uh, their models, primary, uh, legs of their stool really is this lack of liability is that assured yeah you know it, it it may or may not be a good thing but it isn't particularly surprising and to get in the weeds a little bit um this is called the doctrine of piercing the corporate veil which basically holds that an investor shouldn't be held liable for the actions of the companies they invest in and you know that makes sense maybe for you and me where we've got our oh, 401k yeah. and a couple shares in a company, but we don't, you know, control the operations of these businesses. It doesn't necessarily make sense for a private equity firm that may have a majority stake in the company and is able to effectively control its operations by choosing the board of directors, choosing the leadership, literally directing 
what the company should do. So we, at the moment, I would argue we have something of a mismatch in, mm -hmm. between what the law allows and what our current business practices do. Right, right. You know, I sometimes think of these uh, conversations, Brendan, in, in three stages. I, I call it, it's broke, let's fix it. And I just want to put it in the back of your mind. Uh, the first question is, how is it broke? What's the evidence? And you've given some of that, and I'm going to pad that a little bit with some numbers in a second. The second question is, how did it happen? What's the history? What's the story? What's the Who are the culprits? And the third one, uh, which I always want to get to, and we will get to, and you do in your book as well, is what are the solutions and how can we, how can we fix it? Um, uh, in terms of the evidence, uh, I got an email within the last week from Americans for Financial Reform, a progressive uh, organization, nonprofit, and it was specifically about private equity, asking me to donate to them so that they could fight private equity. And some of the, uh, the, the terms that were in this donation appeal were that Vice News just exposed that in 2021, in the midst of the pandemic, one single firm, Blackstone, spent 5.1 billion snapping up 80,000 units of low-income housing tax credits uh, that, that had low-income housing tax credits and their predictions were soon to expire. Um, in recent years, the total gross assets of private funds, predominantly private equity firms and hedge funds, has grown to, as you pointed out, 18 trillion and is now nearly the same size as the overall 23 trillion in assets in the entire U.S. banking system. Um, and then the evidence in, as you point out, the uh, Carlisle uh, healthcare situation. I, I, I will uh, ask you in a second to tell us the um, Sun Capital Friendlies story. Um, but uh, one of the things that it seems to me is going on here is there is clear evidence of both the huge size and as you pointed out it's things you touch and drink and and count on in your daily life that you don't know are held by by these organizations um and the other evidence i think that sort of bridges into the history part is the enormous amount of lobbying and hiring of uh members of the government elite, if you will, to uh, to make sure that they keep the advantages they have. Um, so tell us the the Sun Capital friendly story, because that's sort of it. It's the same broad strategy, a slightly different tactic. Of course. So the story of Sun Capital and Friendly's is really interesting. You know, Friendly's was this sort of iconic diner chain in the Northeast that served milkshakes and classic American fare. It was started by two brothers during the Great Depression who closed their story um, during World War II and put a sign out saying that they would come back once we won the war. So it was a really iconic chain. It um, was ultimately purchased by the private equity firm Sun Capital, which executed a lot of the tactics that we were just talking about in terms of fees, leasebacks, and so forth. Um, ultimately, uh, they pushed the company into bankruptcy. Um, and why would they do that? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because Sun Capital wasn't just the largest 
owner of um, Friendly's, it was also the company's largest lender. And if you're familiar with the bankruptcy process, typically the lenders essentially assume control of the company, at least in many circumstances. So by being both the owner and the lender, Sun Capital was able to sell Friendly's from itself to itself. And the reason that they did that is by executing that move, they were able to push the pension obligations that Friendly's, the diner chain, had onto what's called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is this quasi-government agency. Um, and it meant that Friendly's and Sun Capital wouldn't have those responsibilities to employees and retirees. So it was an example of where a private equity firm is able to sort of extract profits from a company not necessarily by improving its operations, but through financial or legal machinations that push responsibilities to employees, to customers, off onto others. Right, and as I said, this is this uh, that example uh, with a with a different twist than the uh, the earlier Carlyle Healthcare example um, is another bit of the. It, it's where the evidence for the problem. Um, overlaps with the uh, the the history and the strategy of what they do. You make the point that uh, private equity success is not necessarily in running businesses, although that is probably they, what they would hope people assume if they if they look into private equity at all. But really, in using and abusing the financial and legal system, uh, the context in which all of this takes place. Um, and I think that's an interesting point. The companies often fail that they buy. Uh, I, you say they're 10 times more likely to declare bankruptcy. That's right. You know, and private equities defenders, um, you know, will quite reasonably say that only, you know, a portion of their deals fail. Um, uh, you know, many companies that are purchased by private equity succeed, you know, survive or survive. even succeed. Um, but, you know, I always say, you know, not every Ford Pinto needs to explode for it to be unsafe at any speed, you know, by dramatically increasing the chance that uh, a company may go bankrupt or suffer in some ways suggests that there might be misaligned incentives um, in the private equity sort of legal and regulatory structure. To go back to sort of your original observation, um, you know, I think that's right in that you look at who runs private equity firms. Unsurprisingly, it's people with financial backgrounds, not necessarily people who have experience in engineering, sales, marketing, logistics, operations, and so forth. And so because that's their experience, the changes that they tend to make typically are financial ones rather than operational ones, or looking critically at the legal system and seeing how it can be used to private equity firms' advantages. That's not illegal, but it's often somewhat different than the way that private equity firms um, present themselves in the public sort of debate. Mm -hmm. And so the, that first question was, uh, can the companies fail and the private equity firms succeed? The answer is an overwhelming yes. Um, mm -hmm. And even the, the I, I, I noticed, you, you know, you, you, you said uh, companies they own succeed and then kind of shifted that to survive. Because often, um, by uh, pulling resources and so on, they make the company less able to thrive, but able to survive. Um, but uh, it, it seems that it's not just that. 
there's even the question of do the investors make money? So we've we've put the companies up against the private equity firms. What about the investors who are investing? Uh, as we as I said at the top, your your description of what their method of doing business is is a little of their own money, uh, some more investor money, and ultimately a lot of debt. Yeah, and I'm glad that you you recapped where private equity firms get their money because you know ultimately to buy a company you need you need money and so they put up a little bit of their own but at least a large part of their money comes from other investors and those investors may be pension funds they may be sovereign wealth funds so you know funds from other countries or they may be um, you know very high net worth individuals um, and there's an effort to sort of ink move private equity towards retail investors, which we can obviously talk about if you and your listeners are interested in. Um, I think that at least in the short or medium term, um, many of those investors, what are called limited partners, um, seem to be somewhat happy. Um, you know, the pension funds uh, have called private equity, quote unquote, a superior form of capitalism. But I think that there is emerging, emerging research out there that suggests that private equity firms' returns may not be as robust as they publicly advertise, that some mm. of the metrics that they use may be gameable in different ways. You know, ultimately, I defer to economists and financial analysts for though that sort of research. You know, as, as we mentioned, I'm just mm -hmm. a lawyer. Um, but it is interesting that there's a sort of new emerging body of research. And to go back to the law here, one of the really interesting things is that often private equity firms will um, literally contract away their fiduciary obligations to their investors, saying that we do not necessarily need to act in the interest of the, of our investors when we make our um, our investment decisions. That is something that the SEC is looking at critically right now, but it suggests that there's sort of a daylight between what the investors want and what the private equity firms want. Wow, so, so they shield themselves from the consequences um, legally, and then they even shift themselves from the consequences of the of their for their investors. It, it, it's pretty pretty remarkable. Now, um, one thing I just want to jump on, and then we'll get into bigger questions. Is you say that, or the fact is that private equity firms make some of their money from the companies they buy through management fees that the company has to pay every quarter or every year for the privilege of being owned by them. What's that about? It seems crazy. And why do companies agree to that sort of a term? So it's um, a cost of doing business with a private equity firm. Um, originally, as I understand it, management fees were instituted as a way to kind of keep the lights on in the private equity firm as they were, you know, reshaping the companies that they bought. That you know, you know, private equity firm buys up a business, it plans to hold it for three or five years. It needs enough money to keep going so that you know it can execute on its strategy. As I understand it, management fees have um, been, uh, you know, sort of growing in size and importance as sort of a, as a actual revenue stream for private equity firms. And there's some really interesting work happening where, um, to again get in the weeds a little bit here, private equity firms um, are typically compensated on a two, what's called a two and twenty model. So they get two percent of the funds that they invest every year plus twenty percent of the profits. Um, they are trying to reorganize their contracts so that many of the management fees they get are treated um, as the 
tax preference 20% rather than the 2%, all of which is a long and complicated way of saying that in addition to getting more money through management fees, they are working hard to get taxed less for the fees that they receive. Wow. And, 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 and to that sort of question, which I'm, I, I assume the answer is because they're desperate, why, I mean, why would you agree to, I'll be bought by you and I'll pay you fees for the right of being owned by you? Uh, it's a great question. Um, and it's one that I've asked many people about ah. why would private equity firm, why would somebody agree to be bought by a private equity firm? And I think it, it goes to what are the interests of the executives of the company that's being bought? Um, uh -huh. Oftentimes, when a large company is getting bought by a private equity firm, the executives are compensated by and large um, in stock. And so the purchase of the company by the private equity firm is a big payout for the executives. They're going to get you know cash for all that stock that they've got sitting out there. So oftentimes, whether or not this is in the long-term interest of the company, it may certainly be in the, in the short-term interest of the executives that are running it. When you sort of go down the chain in size, um, a similar, maybe less nefarious story is happening. Um, when you talk about private equity firms that are buying up um, you know, OBGYN or other medical clinics, oftentimes what it is, is it will be a doctor who's you know, worked at or run that clinic for a generation and is looking to retire. Mm. That's a great payout for them. It works well. Um, but it doesn't necessarily work out for the doctors and the professional staff that remain. Um, because now they're, you know, subject to sort of the direction of the private equity firm. There are complaints about, you know, essentially private equity firms making medical decisions um, rather than the doctors doing it, buying cheap supplies to such an extent that, you know, they, uh, as alleged, they were buying needles that were so cheap that they would break off in people's arms. It's gotten to such an it's gotten to such an extent within the medical profession that um, you know, if you go to job posting boards for um, dermatologists, for instance, you'll see job postings for specific clinics and they'll literally say in the title of the job description in all caps, not private equity owned. Um, and so to go back to your original question, it's a situation where the people that are currently running the business often succeed when the private equity firm buys it, um, but not necessarily for those that remain. Right. So it sort of goes back to, I think, what I said in the introduction, that we've been beset by short-term, small-picture thinking for a long time. It's kind of, the, to some extent, the, the nature of, uh, of the wealthy, of top management, of the C-suite. Um, short, we, you know, people have been railing against quarterly profits and short-term this and that for, you know, decades. Um, but but what we see is that there's an ideal match between uh, a private equity firm and that sort of uh, leadership of a company. Oftentimes, yeah. Um, in that, you know, the the people that are leaving the company um, are going to get a payout. Right. And then there's often um, a sort of mirror image of that in that private equity firms often have preferred executives who will run the companies that they acquire and will mm -hmm. hop from company to company or directors that are essentially directors for hire who will or are employed by the private equity firm that will work for these companies. So um, and they'll parachute in and, you know, mm -hmm. oftentimes be compensated very well for their work. Sure. Sure. OK, let me tell people this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally and I'm speaking today with Brendan Ballou, a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's antitrust division 
And we're talking about his first book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. And you can learn more at plunderthebook.com. Uh, before I ask my next question, let me just uh, add a little more to that uh, notion I, I, I mentioned earlier, which is the evidence of the destructive nature of private equity. And these are some statistics that uh, I picked up along the way. Companies bought by private equity firms are far more likely to go bankrupt than companies that aren't. We talked about that. Over the last decade, private equity firms were responsible for nearly 600,000 job losses in the retail sector alone. And this was pre-pandemic. This was when the retail sector was doing very well. In nursing homes, where they've been particularly active, uh, private equity ownership is responsible for an estimated 20,000 premature deaths over a 12-year period, according to a recent working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And then, as uh, Brendan mentioned, how it's all around you, only you don't know it, similar tales can be told in mobile homes, prison health care, prison phone systems, emergency medicine, ambulance, apartment buildings, and elsewhere. Uh, the companies, as we said, this is Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, Bain, Apollo, Sun Capital, etc. When you hear those names, um, you can, you can uh, assume this is private equity. And the thing that I, I noticed, I think Lynn Paramore said in an introduction to an interview she did with you, if the restaurant you're used to, or you know, maybe even the hospital you're used to, suddenly seems to be running a tighter uh, ship and falling down on their service, and, and just you kind of notice things aren't the way they used to be, often the explanation will be that the larger company that owns your, uh, you know, the, 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 the concern that you deal with on a daily basis um, has been bought by private equity. Um, so let's talk about their power to rig the system in their favor, their power to, as I said, write the rules that they play by. Um, uh, and uh, just a couple of, of, of um, notes, among the folks they've hired, um, Timothy Geithner, who ran the uh, bank rescue system under Obama, Newt Gingrich, Paul Ryan, two speakers of the House, David Petraeus. These are all the sorts of individuals that have been hired by private equity to uh, curry favor in the halls of, um, of, of legislation and, and regulation. So talk a bit about their lobbying muscle and their hiring practices. So it's pretty extraordinary. Private equity firms and investment firms have given some $900 million in contributions to federal candidates and elected officials since 1990. Um, they have hired some of the leading lights of the government. You know, you already mentioned several of them. Uh, it includes secretaries of treasury, secretaries of state, defense, chairman of the SEC and um, FCC, any number of senators and Congress people. Um, and they have been extraordinarily effective at um, advancing their agenda, both in Congress and across agencies and in the states. I think the, the sort of story that most people refer to is the fight over what's called the carried interest loophole. Um, the carried interest loophole is this uh, essentially idea that um, private equity firm executives and others can pay a lower effective tax rate than you and I do. Um, it's something that 
presidents have been trying to close at least since uh President Obama, actually, when he was still a senator, he was campaigning against it. He was unable to close it. Interestingly enough, President Trump was also opposed to um, closing the carried interest loophole. He failed. And most recently, President Biden um, tried to do this, but first through his budget and then through what ultimately became the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, not only were private equity and other firms able to protect the carried interest loophole through that debate, they were actually able to get a clarification that gave them sort of a new tax advantage um, at a time when, you know, every other amendment on, um, you know, granting, you know, expanding Medicare to include health, you know, vision and dental benefits or expanding free lunch programs. As all of these amendments were failing, a single amendment to expand the tax benefits for private equity and related firms um, did pass. So it's an example of where I think the industry has just been almost astoundingly successful in mm -hmm. advancing its agenda. Mm -hmm. So as, as we said, their, their expertise um, and the, the route to their success does not come through uh, uh, managing thriving companies uh, and running businesses extraordinarily well, but using and abusing the laws, the systems, and in this case, the government. Um, as, as you point out, the largest firms each spent three to seven million lobbying in 2021 when uh, Biden was trying to get that benefit into the, his first budget. Um, and, and you also point out, and this one blew my mind, Blackstone Stephen Schwartzman income in 2022 was 50 times that of the chief executive of Goldman Sachs. Yeah, 50 I, I, times. And if you asked people, you know, from the 2008 crash, who was the big boogeyman, it might have been Goldman Sachs. I can't remember what the exact multiple was on on the differential in their in their earnings. But it is kind of amazing how much more um, executives at private equity firms can make uh, than executives at investment banks, which, you know, I think, as you're suggesting, are far better known by Americans yes. um, than, you know, institutions like Blackstone, Carlyle, KKR are. Okay, so I've often said that when I look uh, out at the big picture, um, that our incentive structures uh, seem to be way off in terms of if we go back to those crises uh, that I mentioned at the top, whether they're public health crises, inequality crises, climate change, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and let me just almost as an aside here say, what we're talking about when you have private equity for years buying and gutting things that serve middle class and working class people um that is a under the radar if you will contributor to the anxiety the anger the rage the grievance that can then be played by authoritarian leaning um uh white nationalist leaning um etc etc uh politicians um in which you get the greedy elites um, courting the uh, the very people that they are uh, failing to serve, um, and in in the bargain, um, uh, supporting social uh, grievance uh, that brings out the worst in our society. But so two things there. One is talk about how they actually favor 
industries that serve poorer communities. Yeah, you know, it's sort of surprising, you know, for a business that's all about building making money, you would sort of think that they would target industries that served rich people because that's where the money is. To my surprise, often private equity firms instead went after industries that service the, the poor or working class people. Um, so we're talking payday lenders, for-profit colleges, prison services, mm. mobile homes, and so forth. Um, and I think the, the common thread between all those different industries is that they're ones where oftentimes the customers really don't have an alternative and so um, are willing to put up with higher costs or lower quality of care because there's really no other choice. I think the most extreme example of this is prison services yes, where yes. private equity firms have been enormously active buying up prison phone companies, prison cafeterias and commissary services, prison healthcare companies and so forth. Um, and the allegations made against these companies are pretty extraordinary. You know, when you're talking about cafeterias, that um, these PE-owned businesses were serving meat that was literally labeled on the boxes, not fit for human consumption. That when you're talking about um, PE-owned healthcare companies, that there are cases where um, uh, prisons had to take drug holidays because they didn't have enough drugs to service the whole population or where a woman had to give birth in her cell by herself because no nurse or doctor would come to her aid. Um, when you're talking about prison phone services, um, that people are having to pay you know, upwards of $10, $15 for a 15-minute phone call, um, it suggests that these are industries where the purchasers, private equity firms, realize that there's a lot of money to be made because they have a literally captive audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in case of prisons, literally so, yes. Um, talk a little bit more, if you will, about uh, people may think that prisons don't touch them, uh, but it seems to me the places where it gets really scary is, again, not necessarily retail and so on, but medical, pension, and then 401ks, and now you say a new horizon is the insurance business. Those are things which we count on, uh, rich or poor. I think all of us that have access to any of those, some people don't have access to pensions or 401ks and can't afford insurance. But for those that have access to it, these are things we count on, and those are in their crosshairs. Yeah, why don't we start with those last ones first, and then we can work our way yeah. backwards. So. Insurance is really interesting in that private equity firms, you know, as we've sort of been talking about earlier, need money to buy up companies. And in some ways, they've sort of tapped their traditional resources, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and so forth, and so have turned to buying up insurance companies, which offers them an opportunity because you and I essentially pay monthly or quarterly um, premiums to a life insurance company, for instance, um, that'll ultimately, you know, have a payout when, when we die. Um, they are able to use that monthly or quarterly money to fund their various projects in private equity and infrastructure and so much else. What's really interesting is that there's reporting in the trade publications on insurance and now increasingly in the popular press about how private equity firms are essentially moving a lot of these assets to offshore affiliates in the Bahamas that, um, or, or Bermuda, Bermuda rather, mm -hmm. that have lower capital requirements um, than 
here in the United States. So what that means essentially is they have to keep less money on hand in case things go bad and they've got more money that they can play with for their various projects. Um, you know, that may sound familiar to folks who yes. lived through the, the Great Recession and remember when there was discussion about capital requirements and liquidity. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that a disaster is inevitable, but it suggests that, you know, uh, a disaster is somewhat more likely. And the really interesting thing is, and I'm not an insurance lawyer, so I don't want to get too, you know, mm -hmm. over my head here, but um, traditionally when an insurance company fails, um, the responsibility for the plans are ultimately assumed by state guarantee corporations and the state that the insurance company was headquartered. And so what that means is, and that's a fund that other more responsible insurers pay into. Sure. And so what that means is if a private equity firm buys up an insurance company, moves assets offshore, and then the insurance company ultimately fails, it won't necessarily be the private equity firm that's on the hook for paying all those, um, all those dues that they have for their customers. Rather, it's other insurance companies that were more responsible and more prudent that may have to take on those responsibilities. I mean, it, it even seems to me the point that I made in asking that question, which is these are things that people rely on. These are not luxuries. Um, in some sense, that makes them even a greater target because government, when it's doing its job, um, creates a safety net for the sorts of things that families and individuals ultimately rely on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I think private equity firms are in some ways assuming the role of government in, in certain services. You know, I alluded to this earlier, but, um, you know, PE firms are, for instance, or have bought up um, water municipal, muni yes. municipal water services. Right. They are buying up, um, you know, colleges. They are in some places providing fire services. So when, many, we, when providing... we talk about a, a march toward privatization, a campaign for privatization, um, that used to just be, you know, privatization. But what you're saying is that very often privatization means private equity. Yeah. I think the really interesting area is ambulances where, you know, for people in younger generations, I don't think that they are even really aware that ambulances by and large used to be run by, um, you know, municipalities. Now mm. they are increasingly privatized and it's an industry where private equity firms have been very active. I will say I had a staph infection a few years ago. And when I looked at, it was a severe one. I was, you know, laid up for four months. Um, when I looked at my bills, my insurance had covered almost everything. My ambulance bill was the biggest bill I had. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when you're talking about surprise medical billing, yes. it's um, it's something that affects millions of Americans. And uh, it's one that Congress actually was able to, lobby, was able to, to pass legislation on, um, despite the millions of dollars that private equity firms spent. Yet ambulances were accepted from that bill. So it's still possible to get a um, uh, get a surprise bill from an ambulance. Mm -hmm. um, let's let's talk then just a little bit about pensions. Again, something that people are counting on. Yeah. So, um, you know, pensions are uh, one of the primary sources of funding for private equity firms. Um, you know, it's it's an area where there's actually kind of a symbiosis between private equity firms and pension funds, 
One of the unfortunate things is there's some reporting about how pension funds, which obviously are often, if not usually, coming from um, union workforces, teachers, firefighters, police, mm-hmm. and so forth, are being used to fund acquisitions and ultimately anti-union or anti-labor actions at those businesses. Mm. Okay, let's go to solutions, okay? And one thing that that I think is helpful in your assessment here is that by pointing out the, the, the three big flaws, which is the uh, short-term thinking and how that impacts decision-making, the uh, large debt and how that affects decision-making, and then the uh, insulation from liability for consequences. Once you say, okay, these are the three things, we have to patch those holes in the dike. Um, and in fact, uh, so as, as I think I alluded to earlier, incentives are crucial and they've been able, for the most part, to keep the incentives in their favor um, so far. But talk about where, and, and, and I think as you, as you say, I'm just going to put this up before you have to say it, is that Congress would be the ultimate place uh, as uh, there was that battle over the budget, there was the battle over the um, Inflation Reduction Act. Congress is the ultimate place where the rules can be set. But if Congress is going to be stalemated um, by minority rule and by in, in, intense lobbying, then there are other avenues. And you've pointed out in some cases where... Uh, advocates um, have been successful already. Yeah, I think that there are a couple areas where advocates have been really successful. Um, One is the area that we were just talking about, prisons. Um, There has been a really effective lobbying campaign to cap the cost of prison phone calls that started with local legislation, I believe in New York and San Francisco, moved to state legislation in Connecticut, and ultimately um, federal legislation just passed last year to give the FCC more robust rulemaking authority here. Um, So I think it's an area where if activists choose specific industries um, that people can understand where the injustice is, um, they can be really effective. Now, ultimately, you know, what we need to do is solve the three problems that we were talking about, short-term thinking, reliance on debt and fees, and insulation from liability. Congress can play a role here and could act on these, but so too can states and localities, you know, requiring, for instance, that if a private equity firm buys a business in its jurisdiction, that it not enact, you know, exact onerous fees or execute things like sale leasebacks, which we were talking about earlier. Um, there are things that, oh, you know- Oh, just for a second. Sale leaseback, we talked about earlier, but just remind people what that is. Yeah, so that's where the private equity firm requires the company to sell its assets and then lease it back. So, you know, if you've got stores, you require the store to be sold and then lease back the property. It gets this quick hit of cash, but it means that now you have sort of this unending financial obligation. You've made owners into renters and you took the profit. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, there are things that can be happen at the state level, happen at the local level. There are things that federal regulators can do, whether it's the SEC, Health and Human Services, Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Um, so I think, you know, while people typically look to Congress and there are things that Congress can do here, there are a lot of different levers that people can pull to enact change here. Okay. And um, 
as you say, it, it can, may come down in as you do as you lay out in the book in different sectors, different agencies. HHS when it comes to nursing homes, FCC when it comes to prison phones, Fannie and Freddie when it comes to housing. Um, but it seems to me the upstream of any uh, hope for that is education and activation because this juggernaut is well-educated on what it wants and relentless and well-funded in how it goes after it. So how do you see that, the, the, the current environment for that education and activation so that we, uh, you know, we can begin to, to successfully push back? Well, this is an area where I'm hopeful. You know, it's, you know, programs like yours helps get the word out about what private equity firms are and the kind of things that they do. Um, I'm really grateful, you know, when um, people have been talking, you know, reaching out to me, talking about their experience with private equity and what, what and, you know, they want to know what they can do. I would encourage people to, you know, learn about private equity, learn about, you know, the incentives that it has and what, you know, can be done at a policy level, but also not to underestimate your own power here. You know, I say this as somebody that, you know, has worked in government several times, you know, public sentiment, you know, outrage, anger, encouragement really can affect people in these big bureaucracies who are trying to do the right thing, you know, but may not, may not feel that they can speak up or want to do the right thing, but don't necessarily know what the right thing is. Um, so I will say, even if you don't necessarily see it, um, people talking about these issues, people raising their voice really can have an impact. Okay. Um, places where people can learn more. Um, uh, books, websites, uh, you know, any, any of that sort of thing, but, but in addition to your book, Plunder. Well, um, you know, I, I already mentioned some of the academic research. Gretchen Morganson, as you mentioned, has a wonderful book out. I'd recommend in terms of organizations, there are groups that are, you know, I'm not familiar with everything that they do, but, you know, what I've seen shows, suggests that they're doing really interesting work that are um, working on these things. You already mentioned one of them, Americans for Financial Reform, right. but also the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, um, United for Change, the American Economic Liberties Project, and so many others. Um, I just encourage folks to go to their websites and learn more about these things because there's a lot that can be learned, but it's also accessible. You know, This doesn't necessarily need to be really complicated, dense, boring stuff. Okay. Finally, just let me ask you um, what what questions you're asking now. The, the, the questions you asked a couple of years ago resulted in this book. What, what are the questions you're asking now? And, and, and you can let this be kind of your closing thoughts. <laughs> well, now I'm starting to think about, you know, this was about by and large private companies. Now I'm starting to try to do some research on public companies. Um, and this idea of shareholder supremacy, um, which it turns out is a concept that has, um, was invented relatively recently and trying to understand where it came from and the consequences that it's had for, you know, making our economy work or not work is something that I'm trying to learn more about now. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I often point to 1970 when uh, uh, Lewis Powell wrote the Powell Memo leading to, you know, a, a kind of a reassessment and, and refocusing of business's approach to politics, but also um, Friedman wrote the, uh, uh, declared that uh, uh, shareholder value was the only uh, goal of business. 
1970 just was not that long ago. What it was, was it was immediately following a Republican president, Nixon, uh, signing the EPA and OSHA laws. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, okay, uh, thank you. Let me tell people um, the, the book again is Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. The website is plunderthebook.com. Now, Plunder the Book is not one of those that's going to give you a ton of research. It's going to mainly focus on the book, where to buy it, some things like that. But you can find more of Brendan's writing at The Atlantic, at The Nation, and other publications. So you just go Brendan Ballou, and that's B-A-L-L-O-U, and, and look for him, and you'll see some more of his writing. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website if you want to get my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about and usually 10 or 15 links to articles to flesh out the conversation, you can sign up at my site or you can email me at temcnally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Free Forum podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, most of the major podcast sites. You'll find years of podcasts at those sites or at mine. Um, Archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer, you can follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vasilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, um, please share this podcast widely. And finally, uh, Brendan Ballou, keep up your good work. Thank you so much for the time. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. There is an indictment against former President Donald J. Trump, and the Trump indictment has been released. The indictment outlining federal charges against the former president alleged mishandling of classified documents that have been unsealed, revealing he's been charged with 37 felony counts. Now, I want to do a side for a second, because I already know what my colleagues on the right are going to say. They're going to say that Merrick Garland and the DOJ are politically motivated, that they're Biden's DOJ. But let's remember, it wasn't until the pre- former president left office, and until the records were found, and until he refused to hand them over that this occurred. And I know those on the right are going to say it's politically motivated, but no, it isn't because it takes time to get to this point. You know, you don't just like, you know, you know, look at a cliff note version of, you know, potential felony counts, 37 of them, folks. Now, I'm sorry. I know some of you, probably not many of you watching love Donald Trump, but I know some of you do. And, you know, you're not going to agree with me on this, but those of you who could take him or leave him and those of you who loathe him. Um, I think would agree with me that you cannot trust him with this kind of information, especially after leaving office. One, it's illegal for him to have it and knowingly take it and knowingly try to cover up that he took it. What was the purpose in him taking it? I mean, this is a man that continually perpetuates a lie that he actually won the election in 2020, which he did not. We saw what happened with his cult-like followers on January 6th. And I say cult-like followers because not everyone who is a MAGA is, is a cult-like follower. There are people out there who are just Republicans or just love Donald Trump, but they wouldn't follow him like lambs to the slaughter. And I mean, what would this guy do? We don't know. 
We don't know what he would do to elevate himself, to try and create upheaval, to get back into the Oval Office, or to make money, or, you know, e all of the above, with somebody like Putin, with somebody like the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, with somebody like Kim Jong-un of North Korea. We just don't know. So this information is dangerous for somebody to have, but I'm sorry, you know, there are those of you out there who don't want to vote, you voted for him once, maybe voted for him twice, you're not going to do it a third time, either because you didn't do the second time, or you don't want to happen the first time around. And, and, you know, people talk about instability with Biden's age. What about instability with reckless behavior? This is reckless behavior. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network.